You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a major Canadian pension plan and a service provider to institutional investors, and the latter just happens to head one of the longest-running Masters of Mathematical Finance courses on the planet. We speak on artificial intelligence and machine learning, as well as where these areas are being used by and affecting the realms of finance and facets of everyday life that touch all of our lives. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, I'm James Brown with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Uh, today is Wednesday, August 12th, and we have Wei Shi from OP Trust and Luis Seiko from Sigma Analysis and Management. Let's start with self-introductions. Uh, we'll start with you, Wei. Sure thing. Thanks, Thanks, James. Uh, great to be here. Um, so as James mentioned, I am uh, currently an employee at OP Trust. I co-head the multi-strategy investing program within the capital markets team. Um, really, it's a program focused on public market opportunities um, across the spectrum of investment strategies, um, both on the traditional and alternative side. Um, we look for different ways of accessing those opportunities, whether it's through our internal capital markets team, as well as through external manager relationships. Um, I've been with, with, with OP Trust for about uh, coming up on nine years now and have had many different roles in that time. Um, but yeah, certainly happy to be here and excited about this conversation. Awesome. Thanks. And yeah, nine years is uh, kind of a lifetime. You've been almost through an entire cycle since the old 2008 times. Uh, so ha- one question I get a lot from, from our members is internal and external expertise at the, uh, the hedge funds and such. So, or at the, uh, the pension plans. Um, so ha- has that changed over the last uh, few years for OP trust? And maybe if you can comment just generally, uh, for the Canadian model or, or others, uh, or has it been been kind of steady as she goes over the last the last uh, few years? Sure, yeah, and I think um, I think I'll, I'll speak briefly about the Canadian model, but also specifically about OP Trust. And I think you know, as the Canadian pensions are well known globally um, for having um, very active and um, high caliber internal investment programs, whether it's on the public market side or the private market side, and I think that uh, certainly has been a hallmark, and it's hasn't really changed. And in fact, um, the trend has largely been to, on the margin, internalize more and more of the asset management through um, the internal teams. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there are uh, some benefits to that in terms of you know fee savings um, and, and the ability to uh, invest and target opportunities that are a bit more specific to the needs of our portfolio, uh, specific to the context of the strategy of the plan itself. Um, I think at OP Trust, uh, we're, we're a little bit smaller than some of our larger peers. So we're about $22 billion uh, of Canadian assets under management. Um, we, we make uh, heavy use of external partners um, with the recognition that, you know, that we're not domain experts in everything that we do. Uh, we certainly have capabilities uh, in, in specific areas, but the, the partnership model is very important to us um, because we're able to leverage um, uh, you know, the, the footprint and the access and the network and the collective intelligence of a broader swathe of uh, partners external to our organization 
um, and, and use that as a complement to add and build a more resilient portfolio uh, that, that we think ultimately will create better outcomes. Very good. Uh, and then for the external managers, um, there's a few different models, the managed account platforms, there's funds of one, there's commingled funds, there's, I guess there's other, probably other structures. Uh, what what have, has, uh, has OP Trust uh, been using and uh, where, where do you think the, the advantages and disadvantages of this might be? Sure. Um, so we, we make use of all, all of those types of structures. I think uh, our preference is to go through uh, a separately managed accounts, um, given that, again, uh, on, the, on, the, on the theme of flexibility, as well as um, bespoke uh, investment mandates, I think managed accounts definitely gives you mm-hmm. those benefits. Um, Obviously, when you have multiple uh, investments kind of routed through a common uh, managed account platform, it also does create uh, synergies and operational uh, enhancements in terms of kind of data aggregation, uh, you know, middle back office kind of efficiencies as well. Um, So I think from a strategic standpoint, uh, the managed account type of framework uh, is heavily adopted by the Canadian pensions. And I think for Mm -hmm. good reasons. Having said that, it, it, we, we don't shy away from, you know, making investments through a fund of one or, uh, or a commingle fund for that matter. Um, you know, we're we aware that uh, what we do, our, our business, you know, it's, it's quite competitive. And there are sometimes good reasons um, why, uh, you know, our, our, our manager partners prefer to stick with a kind of a commingle fund structure. Um, and we'll, we'll assess those situations on a case-by-case basis, um, you know, keen to make kind of those trade-offs uh, and take, a, take account of the specific considerations of that situation. Um, but obviously, you know, the preference is to go through kind of a managed account platform, and that's really where our target has been. Is that to really roll up the risk to your uh, chief risk officer and the, the risk, uh, you know, the, the office there? Um... It, using a managed accounts, could you have absolute transparency? Uh, and maybe a second unrelated question is, when would you use an external manager? Is it is, is there a break even with regard to hiring somebody internally on an asset level or something like that, that you would use an external manager to get access to something? Yeah, I think, um, I think the risk uh, look through and the risk aggregation is one. Um, you know, critical uh, benefit of a managed account platform. It's not the only one. Um, I think there are other benefits, for example, like, you know, you are able to, you know, have the latitude to kind of customize the investment mandate slightly, uh, whether it's things like, um, you know, the the targeted volatility that you want to run a specific strategy at, Um, you're able to do that and change those dials um, within a managed account structure. Whereas if you invested through a core commingled fund, you would basically have to take um, kind of the, it, the the design of that commingled fund as is. Um, so there, there are benefits uh, broader than just the risk look through. Um, and I think overall, there's, there's an aspect of kind of um, efficiencies. Uh, once you have a managed account set up, managed account platform set up, there's efficiencies in terms of the marginal strategy that you put on to that managed account over time that makes it 
um, more and more kind of cost efficient and time resource efficient, um, the more that you have routed through that managed account platform. So I think over the long term, in terms of building out a program, it, it's certainly a advantageous uh, type of complement to our to our program and our portfolio. So I think fees is one aspect that we definitely consider. Um, the other is, I think the starting point for us is always to think about, um, do we have the capabilities, the skill set, um, and also some kind of competitive edge to effectively run a particular strategy internally. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if, you know, we have to just be very kind of um, clear uh, and honest with ourselves in terms of our abilities and where we feel like we do have those capabilities um, and the set of conditions to do so, um, then we would go and, and take a look at, you know, where from a cost efficiency standpoint, from an implementation standpoint, because Another aspect is obviously resource constraints. Um, you know, we don't have the biggest internal team in the world, so we have to be, you know, very measured in in, in deciding what we take on and what we run internally. Um, so all of those considerations come together when we think about whether to uh, implement a strategy uh, through an internal team or or go out and source it through an external manager. Um, within that, uh, absolutely, the, the, the fee dis, uh, the fee consideration is is one aspect of that. And now over to Luis, uh, I've known him for years uh, with uh, our previous uh, shop and then with CASA. He's actually our first member of CASA Sub Analysis, so uh, we're very happy to have him on this call. And uh, he's, he kind of says he has two hats. I think there's maybe more like four. Uh, you know, most people have like their, their job and their, you know, being a father and all these other things, but he has his uh, master's in mathematical finance at university of Toronto. Well, he'll, he'll tell you more about all that and, and his various hats and maybe up to seven by now. Luis, let's hear, uh, hear your introduction, please. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very happy to be, um, you know, a founding member of, of CASA. I, so yes, I am the director of the mathematical finance program at the university of Toronto, where I've been a professor. Uh, for uh, since 1982, a long time, 28 years. Uh, I'm the uh, CEO of Sigma Analysis and Management, a company which is over 20 years old. And uh, in addition to that, in chronological order, I'm the managing director of AngelStar, which is the uh, German subsidiary of Sigma. We have the business in, in Germany. And last, as of two years ago, I'm the CEO of the um, GGSJ Center of Digital Management and Technology Innovation, which is um, a, a, a partner of the University of Toronto to bring education, to create a new business model around education and training. Wow. Well, let's run down the uh, the list there. So it is four hats. Good. Um, the Master's of Mathematical Finance. What, what was the idea behind that? And is, was it the first MMF uh, type of institution set up? Because it was back in, I think it was back in 98, right? It was in 98. Uh, yeah, it was actually the second. Uh, Waterloo had the first one and uh, we created mm. one, but our model was different. Uh, what what uh, was driving our decision there was to create a program that was uh, much closer to industry than uh, academic problems were at the time. Uh, we believed that we wanted a professional program where, where actually a lot of our faculty are from industry. So our, our graduates mm. are, by the time they leave the program, not only they've been uh, taught what they need to know to 
get into the world of quantitative finance, but they've all already been very close inside the industry through their internship and also through the instruction they get from people from the industry. Very cool. And then Sigma, as a start there, once you've gone through the early years and then, and what are you doing now? And I don't know if that's part of the, the angel, angel starting angel start here as well. Or... Right. It is. So, uh, I mean, Sigma is a 20 year old company and it's, it's important to reflect that our, our history is linked to crisis. Uh, we started as a company in 1999 as a response <laughs> to the 1998 credit crunch and the LTCM debacle that put hedge funds under the spotlight. So we came into into the uh, the, the sector to uh, assist Canadian pensions in the alternative space to help them do it right. So that was that was good. And then uh, mm-hmm. a few years later, in 2006, as I think everybody knows, we started a, the the creation of the managed account program. Uh, which uh, two years later uh, proved to be a, a, a lifesaver because what we did is we created a, mm-hmm. an infrastructure to uh, to do investments in hedge funds through managed accounts that gave us um, information. So we were able to put smart hedges through 2008. We had liquidity mm-hmm. so that if you need cash, you can access it. We ended up not needing cash. We we didn't really lose very. We remained flat essentially during the crisis, so that was the um, that was the second um, uh, crisis that we 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 lived through and actually made us uh, bigger and strong. We grew tremendously after that, and then just recently mm-hmm. through AngelStar, we created this. Um, um, it's a loss protection program in Luxembourg, meant for uh, German investors, German institutions, and uh, again a very at a very a good timing because uh, the um, through the loss protection program, which is essentially an institutional version of the first loss uh, fee structure, which is uh, well known, mm-hmm. we managed to produce returns uh, every month of um, of the crisis uh, in earlier in 2020. So it seems that you know we do we do well through uh, through crisis, you know. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos has a sentence when he's asked about Amazon and he says that he prefers to think of what's always important and doesn't really want to get um, uh, caught up with where the trends are are going. For us, it's a bit of the same thing. Uh, We prefer to focus on what will always be important, such as good risk management, good information, good infrastructure, best technology you can have, so on and so forth. Yeah, I like the one from Intel's Andy Grove. Uh, only the paranoid survive. So you can, when you're in a startup or any business, really, I mean, if you're not constantly looking over your shoulder and seeing what's going on, you know, being able to pivot, uh, it gets tough. So maybe, uh, maybe two, maybe a definition of uh, first loss for those who don't know. Like, can you tell us how that works? And then let's hear about your center for digital management and innovation as well. Mm-hmm. So, well, the first law structure is um, so on on the surface it looks like just another fee structure. Um, the um, we we pay the managers a, not a twenty percent but a fifty percent uh, performance fee, and that's in return mm. for for a, um, a a loss protection in the form of ten uh, percent of the allocated capital, which they put up in cash. They they. It, it's theirs, uh, but it's used to um, to make up for losses. So it gives a very interesting return structure to the investor because the return structure is essentially one-sided. 
you don't you don't have losses unless you lose all the ten percent, which is very rare. Yeah. And no management and, fee, though, right? It's just zero plus fifty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's zero plus fifty. Okay. So it, it it gives a very attractive um, set of returns uh, to the manager. So on the surface, it, it's it you know it's it, that's what it is, but it's actually a deeper has a deeper um, uh, impact, which is if you analyze the risk taking, it turns out that it's not clear who the investor is and who the manager is, because obviously the, the manager is taking a risk and actually the manager has uh, access to more upside than the investor. So that changes the, the equation, but it does give very good alignment of interest between the investor mm -hmm. and the manager. That's why managers and investors uh, like it. And that's, uh, that's what we launched um, for the, you know, German investor, which as everybody knows, is very conservative. We were trying to replicate yeah. the, the bonds of 2010 that no longer exist that give you 5% return. And this is what it does. They don't want more than that. And this is a very good way of replicating a very safe investment mm -hmm. strategy with a not very ambitious rate of return and uh, good, good uh, stable returns. Very cool. And then your center? Your, your latest, the greatest adventure? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I didn't know that uh, COVID uh, was going to hit. No one knew. But I've always felt that um, universities essentially have the same business model now than they did 400 years ago. Uh, and I think there is, mm -hmm. uh, through the experience of MMF and 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 uh, this idea of bringing industry and universities together that that creates a tremendous value add when it comes to uh on the one hand students getting trained and all and especially getting jobs and at the same time for industry to have uh talent which is which is uh, which is uh, ready to work okay yeah uh, tailor-made that's great tailor-made there's no uh, the, you know the learning curve is not a curve it's not even a point uh, our, our, our students are, are ready. So this is this is the idea. The idea is to work with universities to disrupt the university model from the inside and create better uh, people. Of course, focused on technology, innovation, and everything digital, which is where where there's demand right now. And that's 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 the DGHA Center. Yeah, there we are. Um, yeah, we did a career panel earlier and uh we, one participant had really good quality because you, you got to kind of hire on the for the slope and not the y-intercept but if you have somebody that's already got a very high y-intercept then and with a good slope then you could you got a, a winning combination there um how about to weigh like what, what do you think of this the first loss idea is that is that used in uh, generally in the institutional area is that something that people look at or are they fine with just you know we'll just take the the returns as they are and uh and have the lower fee structure yeah, I think I think first loss uh, certainly. You know, we've we've had this conversation and learned about it uh, a little bit through uh, Sigma and Luis. Um, it's definitely something that we've looked at, um, and I think you know the way I think about it is uh, one the feature about good good loss uh, first loss is that it, it it is a structural way of implementing a better um, aligned incentive structure between the investor and the call it the strategy manager. Um, and mm -hmm. in, in, a, in an environment where um, obviously risk management and portfolio construction is paramount, um, the first loss structure, not only does it create that better alignment of incentive, it's a structural way of enhancing the overall kind of skew of the distribution uh, in terms of your returns. 
Um, so hmm. I think those are those are certainly like very attractive features because those are something that um, you know a, a portfolio manager in running a portfolio focus on, especially in the public market context. Um, what I think it whilst it's interesting, I think one of the limitations is just the overall size that a first first loss program could be run at. Um, and and kind of the overall opportunity set. So I think uh, in terms of whether or not it's an, it's an attractive um, perspective or an approach, I think is certainly a, definitely attractive, and it's a it's a clever way of structuring some of that um, distribution of outcomes in the favor of the investor. Um, I think one of the limitations is scalability. Very good. Yeah, I guess when when managed accounts, I I first heard of them back in like 2002, and people were like, well, not many people use these things, and no, 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 but obviously those have those have scaled up too. So there's uh, it's interesting how ideas get out there. Uh, maybe stick with you, Wei, and let, let's get to the uh, you know this is kind of the the big topic with uh, you and Luis is machine learning and AI, and you're looking at tons of strategies. I imagine all day, every day, not only on diligence, initial diligence on them, but also monitoring them, making sure that they're staying to their, their strategy and the, the type of trading they're supposed to be doing. And then at times, you know, having to, uh, to fire managers or, or allocate capital one way or the other. Um, how much does, does OP Trust rely on, on like big data, machine learning and AI to either look at managers or to um, evaluate their trading programs? And I guess the other side that we see as well is how many of these types of managers and machine learning managers are getting allocations? Um, we, I've heard, I've seen lot, many, many different uh, back tests and many different managers. And it seems like, uh, I'm just wondering how much that is, that's getting traction within the institutional investment community. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously AI and machine learning, uh, it's, it's been kind of the buzz phrases for a while in, in, you know, especially quantitatively driven hedge fund strategies. Uh, certainly the notion is now permeating to the mainstream across, you know, all sectors and industries. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the landscape, um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those situations where you have to, uh, as a, as an allocator, figure out how to cut through the noise and actually find the signal, um, in terms of identifying uh, who are actually credible managers implementing credible techniques uh, that are yeah. actually useful and appropriate for a financial markets context. And I think, I think that's at the heart of uh, ML currently is that, you know, AI ML, its application is, you know, universal across, like I said, like all sectors and verticals. But when you implement some of those techniques in the context of the financial markets, is is actually a very very domain specific uh, skill set um, mm. because uh, financial markets are kind of social ecosystems. They change, they evolve, they adapt. Um, the type of techniques um, coming out of ML, you know, a lot of them don't work well in a, in a financial markets context. And what you end mm. up with is to your point of people thinking that they've, uh, you know, discovered something that's incredible that shows up great in a, in a back test. Uh, but in fact, they're just using a very powerful computational apparatus to find you know, some kind of overfitted return stream. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so we see a lot of that externally when we when we try to kind of um, canvas the market and, and diligence these type of managers. And I think there is a cohort of them that are being very thoughtful in how they're implementing ML techniques in the context of financial markets. Uh, and some of them have had success. I think um, by and large, we're still very early. We're still very, very early in this, in this, in this evolution. Um, and we're excited to see what, uh, what the next generation comes out with uh, as it relates to kind of applying these types of techniques. In terms of OP Trust specifically, uh, mm -hmm. I think we, again, can, coming back to kind of being very um, deliberate and thoughtful about what's appropriate for us. Um, when you talk about AI, ML, you know, part of it is you need to have some sort of infrastructure, some sort of operational capability to actually implement those type of tools. Right. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the data side, um, the architecture side in terms of how you actually uh, do your analysis. All of those things are critical in terms of building up that critical mass just to be able to explore the techniques to apply to the financial markets. And that takes a lot of resources, expertise, time, people. Um, so we, we are exploring how to leverage um, this theme in the context of our our programs and where we have decided to focus our time isn't necessarily to kind of compete with the manager universe on using these mm. types of uh, 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 analytical approaches to find new sources of sources of alpha per se. I think where we have tried to focus on is using these techniques to perhaps come up with better ways of constructing a risk management or portfolio construction logic. Uh, whereby we don't necessarily have to rely on a data edge, but it's really through um, kind of the engineering and uh, research and development effort to, to try to come up with a better uh, framework of risk management that we can apply uh, to all contexts within public market portfolio management. So it's a little bit of a strategic decision at the current uh, juncture to to divert our attention and resources in that manner, where we think that perhaps um, that in our context will yield um, the most um, you know, fruitful uh, results that are actually impactful to our program over time. That's very cool. Yeah, it sounds like you want to create a better 1998 or 2008 so that you can, yeah, instead of worrying about the minutiae of the the trading, it's it's like, let's, let's look at it from a wholesale risk aspect. Um, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's the recognition that like, if we were to focus on kind of the, the, the alpha or the signal research side, it's probably not a game that we're, we can win at because that does require- It's a bit of an arms to, race. <laughs> it's an arms race, right? And, and let's, we have to be honest with ourselves. Like, um, you know, if you, if, you do, if you make a decision to pursue that, um, and if you don't have the critical, cred credible infrastructure and resources to back it, it could become kind of self-defeating. It's actually a, a misallocation of resources from an organizational context, in my view. Yeah, and definitely like re re reverse engineering cars or cell phones. I mean, those are like the mechanical engineering stuff. Uh, that's that's obviously a lot easier than trying to fit something into. A, it's almost like biological how the how the markets work and and have uh, have almost contagions of ups and downs move out through the market. It's not really. I think is as conducive to the physics stuff, but we can ask our resident professor here, uh, Luis 
and you've been you've been into this soup to nuts with educating people, uh, modeling strategies. I imagine running strategies at Sigma, and also looking at uh, obviously looking at the managers that you're allocating to in your your first loss portfolio. There, how um, how have you seen machine learning and AI evolve? Uh, evolve and and are you seeing other institutions uh, react similarly to to it as OP Trust and doing a more of a macro view, or there's uh, more embracing at the micro view or uh, changing the whole trading desk. Like, what, what, what have you seen in that? And I imagine all the the many hundreds of graduates from your program. <laughs> so it's a it's a great question, and the, the, the I'll try to keep the answer short. Okay, um, <clears throat> I, I would say for the most part, uh, when I see people using machine learning, I see them uh, misusing machine learning and AI. As as Wei said, it oftentimes becomes an exercise in overfitting which doesn't really take you anywhere. You need mm-hmm. to have the proper mix of human and artificial intelligence for it to be uh, useful. This is an example that I that I use to explain <clears throat> how this uh, works. Remember Krispy Kremes, the famous uh, stock that Warren Buffett made popular? Uh, investors in Krispy Kremes, what they did back in 2007 is they, they went to parking lots um, where there was a Krispy Kreme and they would sit there in their cars for hours uh, counting how many customers went in, how long the lines Hmm. were, and doing calculations, making revenue projections from sitting in their car on parking lots. Um, Okay, so take that to the limit. Um, Imagine now you have not a person at a parking lot, but you have drones collecting information. Um, But at the end of the day, the, the analysis you do is the same. You have to direct your AI machine learning <clears throat> towards something that makes sense. Um, in a certain sense, nothing has changed except that value investing has moved to the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, but now mm-hmm. you, you, you need to have people who know what they're doing, people who understand investing and technology and can make sense. Looking for patterns without understanding what they are is just an exercise in overfitting. Okay, uh, But now at the same time, mm-hmm. this is something I don't think people should be relaxed about this. Imagine another analogy. Imagine that now every car on the street is a self-driving car. Okay, Self-driving cars will be able to drive faster, uh, avoid accidents, uh, react faster to events than humans. Uh, When you drive now as a human, you are competing with other humans driving with you and everything is fine. But if you are suddenly competing with self-driving cars, you are the only human driving, you're going to be in trouble. Mm. You won't be able to drive. You won't be able to move. Right. So. I think it, it, it's it, in a certain sense that has become an arms race because um, you not only want to take advantage of this early, is that if you are lagging in your adoption of this, very soon you're going to be very severely disadvantaged. So I think it's my, my recommendation is you, if you haven't started, you have to start because very soon you won't be able to really get anywhere unless uh, you have something which is uh, properly structured. True. My favorite story about overfitting is my uh, my family physician had a custom scuba suit ten, 20 years ago, and now he can't fit in it. I hope I can fit into my uh, my suits when I get back to work. But so how about, because now we're in COVID times, right? So w- people have t- entirely changed what they're doing. You mentioned it with your, your Center for Digital Management and Innovation, uh, Luis. So what... What have you, what have you seen happen and occur with um, with uh, I guess the, the markets moved up and down, but also with how people have have changed 
Uh, and how will they change? I mean, now we're looking at maybe it's two or three years. Apparently, Russia has a vaccine. Um, yeah, but, you know, it's going to take quite a while to implement all of this before people can freely get together. Uh, there's T cells now and all these things. So we, we have a, yeah, we have an epidemiologist who speaks with us every five or six weeks. So it's, uh, that's, a, that's a moving target. But how has COVID affected investing, uh, especially allocating, I guess? And we'll, we'll ask we that question too in a sec. And how, um, what do you see on the horizon there, Luis? Well, uh, I'll start with a, another quote by Niall Ferguson. He said that in five years, we will forget what 2019 was like. Okay. Uh, not my quote. Mm. Uh, it's Niall's quote. Uh, usually, you know, very provocative as, as usual. But what we do see is that investors are not very confused. Uh, there are reasons to be bearish, uh, yet equity markets are, you know, they keep rising. Uh, there are tremendous credit pressures, but rates are low. And then people don't know what to make of inflation and the gold trade and the vaccine, and not to mention the U.S. election, mm-hmm. right? Um, so my, my my recommendation in front of all of this is um, risk thinking. Is something which is actually a term coined by Ron Dembo, who created algorithmics. Risk thinking. <laughs> well, that is generate scenarios. Don't try <laughs> to forecast. Forecast is very difficult. Okay, generate scenarios and then figure out what each scenario is going to do for you. And in the bad ones, see if there is a, a cheap insurance policy. Another example, the seatbelt. You know, um, uh, if, if, if you have a, a car crash, you're, you know, you're, you're going to die. If you have a seatbelt, it doesn't cost anything to put a seatbelt on. And yet mm-hmm. it allows you to drive faster, right? Uh, so that's, the, that's a risk uh, thinking. And it's unavoidable because the next... Uh, Google, the next Amazon is out there somewhere. People know we're in times of change where things like these happen. And you you, you want to be there and you just don't want to take uh, too much risk. And that's where risk thinking comes into play. That's my, that's my, my recommendation, risk thinking. Cool. And how are you guys thinking about this, this situation and the risk from it uh, way at, at OP Trust? Yeah, this is obviously, you know, as everyone probably would agree, it's unprecedented in terms of how the world has um, basically changed with a flip of a switch as a result of COVID. And I think, you know, I echo Luis's sentiment around um, and that quote from Nala Ferguson. I mean, I think what we're in right now is a phase transition um, for, for, for people that are expecting that uh, you know, we're going to revert to normal with normal being in, in kind of quotations. I am not exactly sure what that normal looks like, um, because I think uh, as a function of COVID and as a function of kind of these uh, switches in behavior, uh, we're, we're basically stepping to another rung in the ladder. Um, I, I, I honestly do not think that we're going back to what we... Um, thought was quote unquote normal prior to COVID. Um, you know, the, the, the notion of kind of the, the innovation and disruptive forces that are at play, uh, in my view, certainly accelerated as a function of COVID. And that has broad basing implications. Um, I think the way that I think about it, there's a, maybe a couple of themes that I would focus on. One is in this new environment, I, I'm very, very, um, skeptical and I am very critical on uh, trying to understand what is going on in the world 
through the lens of narratives that applied in past historical context. Um, we're, we're not in a world that has a comparable template. Um, and an exercise of looking for a complete analog in history, I think in some ways can give you inspiration, but is not that useful. I think what people need to do is to zero in on their understanding of the first principles of how things work and work through an exercise of first principle thinking and rebuild what is happening using first principles thinking. Um, and this is, this is not dissimilar to what Luis is um, suggesting in terms of scenario analysis. Um, it's as long as you understand the building blocks of how our economy, our financial system markets and how they mechanically work, you can reconstruct scenarios using first principles thinking to say, well, what if this happened? And if this happens, then you can run route that scenario through a risk management framework uh, to look at how vulnerable or how uh, how exposed your 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 current program is to that to that type of outcome. So I think I think it's you know this is this is not easy, but it's necessary in the new environment, which is in uncharted territory. So um, you know I think. To, to, the, to, to, use a, to use a quote, like, I think as investors, you know, we, we generally get kind of uh, skepticism if anyone says, you know, uses the phrase, this time is different. And I think this time is actually different. Um, and yeah. if, if you don't, if you, don't uh, you know, look at and try to assess the situation from uh, that kind of building blocks framework upwards, I, I think you're going to be led, led astray. Um, because we're just in, in, in uncharted waters. So definitely different. We had a panel or webinar um, earlier on in COVID times. And we uh, so we asked the question, like, how do you do operational due diligence? How do you do diligence generally as well on a, a fund that's in, that we are in quarantine? And now, especially the U.S. funds, I mean, if you go down there, you, you know, you got to quarantine both ways, I think, now. So how have... How has your structure way changed or has it changed with external managers? Is it like pens down uh, or is it others have said, well, you know, it's been a while. We've got capital allocate. Uh, we'll, how, are the, how are you getting around or, or finding ways to ameliorate any, any um, trepidation you might, you might have on bringing a new manager on your platform if, if you are? Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, operationally, that's something that we're, we're definitely thinking through. I think we've been actually quite active um, through the whole COVID period, and we made use of our partnership network to kind of deploy capital into strategies that um, leveraged um, those relationships, which allows us to kind of get access to, you know, investments that we otherwise would not have um, as a way to kind of, you know, basically... Uh, leverage the work that some of our partners have done, uh, especially in the context of a management mm. platform. Um, so, so that that has been helpful to us in in this context. I think for uh, for for you know complete new kind of uh, due diligence processes on new strategies uh, and managers. I think I think the o ODD side is um, you know it is a it's an interesting challenge. Um, you, you can certainly do uh, a lot more of the, the coverage of the due diligence items through a virtual environment. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I think there is, there is a little bit of a gap in terms of, you know, ha having the ability to physically visit the facilities and, and seeing, uh, some of the infrastructure mm -hmm. I think is still critical. I think in the near term, we're able to kind of balance that, um, and also be considerate around, you know, ultimately the, the, the sizing of the investment and, and integrate that type of, uh, ODD vector into our decision-making. Uh, I think over time, though, you, I, I, I do think that there's going to be a shift towards, you know, where, where people are able to conduct things virtually, that that will be kind of the default. And then anything that is residual that does require a more physical interaction, I think there's still a still a place for that and still probably will be a need for that. Um, uh, but in terms of, you know, whether or not it's going to operate exactly the same as as it used to, uh, I, I, again, I think we're, 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 we're beyond that uh, into a new paradigm. Yeah. How about you, Luis? Like you're looking at many managers and you're one of the most traveled people I know. Um, mm -hmm. So how, uh, how are you guys coping with this? And if it may last uh, quite a while, uh, are you like, yeah, how, how do you handle your, your diligence and such? Yeah, so uh, this is another area where we, we've been doing due diligence on managers and visiting managers for 20 years. Uh, so actually, we can rely on a lot of data we've already collected. And I mean, it won't last forever, but this is another aspect of um, uh, data-driven initiatives, which is helping us at the um, at the due diligence level. And then, of course, the fact that you're on a managed account that makes a lot of the risks be uh, mitigated by the managed account structure itself. So uh, for, for now, we, I mean, like, like you said, I travel, I used to travel all the time. Now I haven't traveled since March, which is very, very rare and strange for oh, me. Yeah. Very, very rare. But uh, we, I mean, we're still able to, um, for a little longer, continue to profit from the information that we've gathered over the years. Uh, uh, we conduct the marginal, the due diligence that we need to do um, easily, uh, remotely. We're dealing with managers we've known for a long time, for the most part. So, uh, but yeah, it, it's it's going to be an issue. And how things uh, will revert back to normal, we will see. To what extent we'll be using ML and artificial intelligence to conduct due diligence in the future. I'm very, very interested how that may evolve. I have some ideas, but. As um, yeah, as 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 Wei said, is uh, it's very important to don't act by analogy. It's very important to act from principles, know what they are, and then implement your strategy uh, like that. So far, we're 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 doing fine when it comes to the due diligence process. Cool. Well, I'll stick with you, Luis, for final comments to the investors, managers, and other folks on the uh, listen to the podcast. So, what what would you say? Um, People should keep in mind as we go forward and for the rest of the year here. Well, let me so let me put the risk thinking into into practice, right? So if um, again, I, I don't recommend that you forecast, but some people like to forecast. If you forecast and you think things will continue to be the same, we're going to have another eight-year bull run. Then continue to do what you were doing in the past. Okay. Um, however, if that's not the case, if we're going to be doing uh, or getting into it a different uh, market, different situation my prediction is that buy and hold is gone uh, active trading is here to stay um, you need to uh, 
un understand. Uh, mm -hmm. You need to have good information, be able to make quick decisions. You have to decision making will be faster than it has been in the past. And at the end of the day, I think this is a, a good news for the hedge fund industry. Uh, alternative investments will need to mm -hmm. grow. I am seeing many hedge funds turning to family offices. They want to get out of the business. And I understand why. But I think we're going to be in a situation where alternative investments will be more important than ever before. So I think this is good news for the industry, but the industry needs to grow, adapt, and change. So this is my advice, not just to investors, but for the hedge fund um, um, hedge fund uh, firms too. Great, thanks. And the last word to Wei. What's your what's your advice for folks? Yeah, I think you know, Luis was very um, articulate in his thinking. I I, I tend to agree. Uh, going back to the theme of you know, this time is different. I think everything is going to change. Um, I think this is an incredible opportunity for investors, to be honest. I think amidst the framing, I think, you know, I generally hear the framing as, you know, it's, it's uncertainty and it's, it's, you know, a lot of things going on that we perhaps don't truly understand. Um, and I think that that type of like mental framing of the problem lends itself to, um, you know, kind of not, not being embracing of uh, what could be. So I think I'm I'm personally mm -hmm. quite excited in this environment. I think, um, you know, out of crisis comes enormous opportunity and a, a new generation of uh, models, businesses, uh, asset management styles, etc. is is kind of spawning uh, as a as a function of change. So we're keeping our eyes peeled in terms of opportunities. And again, we're going to go back to kind of first principles thinking and question a lot of assumptions that we've made in the past about how we think about uh, investing, allocating capital. Um, mm. What does a hedge fund even mean? Uh, is the hedge fund structure even appropriate for the future? Um, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of convergence um, and breaking down of kind of definitional barriers that we just arbitrarily erected in the past. Um, hmm. and, and if you can see problems through a different lens, a different dimension, I think that's where the edge is going to be. Great. Thanks. Wow. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, Luis, uh, for your time. Well, we covered a lot. Machine learning, AI, uh, alternative data uh, with the Krispy Kreme uh, analogy there. We have, uh, you know, COVID, digital, digital. We didn't get to digital learning, but, you know, I'd love to have you guys uh, separately or together on another podcast again sometime soon. And uh, we we'll look forward to that. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us.